Good morning. In 2005, uh, about 20 members of Summit Baptist Bible Church, um, the church that, uh, uh, this church under our previous name, uh, traveled to South Africa uh, to work alongside Jim and Diane Lytle um, and do a, a vacation Bible school, a VBS. Um, it was a great experience for us to go across, halfway across the world and um, share the good news of Jesus Christ. Before we went, one of the older members of our congregation who had a real gift for evangelism uh, talked to us about this, this tool that we could use that he wanted to, to purchase for us and have us take with us. And that tool, uh, some of you may be familiar with the EvangiCube. Uh, that tool was something that was greatly used over there in South Africa with the, with the kids. Um, they loved it. They wanted us to share the gospel with them over and over again. Uh, they wanted EvangiCube so they could take him home and they could share the gospel with their friends. It was so exciting to be used by God in another culture, in another place that was so different than, than it is here. In John chapter 4, Jesus takes, uh, his, takes us, God takes us to a place in Scripture where Jesus takes a trip to another culture where people think and act and even worship very differently than, than they did where he was from. But there was something important about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, this message of his kingdom that had to be preached. And so Jesus crossed cultures, crossed customs, crossed uh, preferences uh, to reach into the life of someone who was an outcast in her culture, to reach people in a different place. We're going to look at that story this morning in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. The big idea of our message is that uh, Jesus is sending us, you and me, to share his word with those who need to hear because Jesus is the Savior of the world. Amazing thing has happened. In John chapter 3, you have Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, this religious ruler of the Jews. And as the story ends, we're left hanging. It's interesting because there are a number of different stories about Jewish people. And the biblical writers often leave you hanging as to how that person is going to respond. We probably think most, most easily of the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful. And we never know whether he converted, he came to Christ or not. There's the story, of the parable of uh, the prodigal son 
really the prodigal sons, one who went away and then came home, and the other who refused to be a part of the celebration. And that story was a depiction, a, a description of the religious leaders in Christ's day. And like the son who went away, who, who didn't partake, we never really know how he responds. And in the same way, we never really know how the Jews are going to respond. John chapter 1, Jesus, the, John says, he came unto his own. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to the, as many as would receive him. To those he gave the right to be the sons of God. Jesus is sending you and I to share his word with those who need to hear because Jesus is the savior of the world. In John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, a religious leader, who hears the message, speaks to Jesus, comes to, to hear some things that he should understand, but he doesn't quite get it. And, and if he does get it, he's not really ready to respond. In John chapter 4, Jesus crosses these cultural barriers and he goes to the Samaritan woman. And through his meeting with the Samaritan woman, many Samaritans come to believe in Jesus Christ. At the end of the chapter, uh, there's a Roman official, probably a Gentile. And there's a story about him coming to faith. In fact, he, he believes that Jesus is a healer, but his faith is so great that his faith really goes beyond just wanting his son to be healed. And salvation comes to him and to his household. So we have this, this pattern going on. In the Gospel of John, those of you who are studying John, you need to know that John has eight major signs. Uh, John, at the end of the book, talks about many signs Jesus did. So many that, that the books, that all the books of the world could not contain them. But these signs were written that you might believe. So there are eight major signs. The first sign is in John chapter 2, the miracle of Cana of Galilee, where Jesus changes water into wine, John chapter 2. Uh, the second one is this healing of the Roman official that I talked about in John chapter 4. The third is the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem in chapter 5. Feeding of the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee in chapter 6. Walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee in chapter 6. Healing of the man who's blind in Jerusalem, John chapter 9. The raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And then finally, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the final and most important sign. There are also eight statements where Jesus says, I am. And I am is a very important thing, we'll see in our passage, because God identifies himself as I am. In John chapter 4, in our passage, when the woman at the well uh, responds to Jesus and says, well, all that's true, but when Messiah comes, he'll straighten it all out. And Jesus says, I am. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. And also in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. In all these statements, we've, we've, we learn something about who he is, the importance of who he is. And that's really significant because in our passage, Jesus says, if you knew who it was who was saying this to you and was offering you this water, you would ask for it. If you knew who I, who, who I were, of John is unique, um, different than the other Gospels, different material. John's writing 30 or more years after the other Gospels are written, um, and it's, it's really significant. I think there was probably in the church a real desire to hear more of the stories, more of the stories of, of who Jesus was and what he did, and uh, as the other apostles began to die off, it was important for John to, to give some perspective that, that the church didn't have. One of the other things that seems to have been an issue in the early church was we, we believe in the law and we believe in the prophets, but what do we do with these writings? What do we do with these wisdom books? And so John, uh, by far and away, quotes the wisdom books, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all the, the wisdom books of the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the Christ. Therefore, um, distinct uh, observations that we can make about John that are really important. One is these I am statements that we've talked about um, where it allows us to go deeper into an understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, The second thing is uh, the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. There was this, this promise that Moses made that there would arise a prophet like him. And that he would speak the words that God would speak only, he would speak the words that only came from God. God would put those words in his mouth. The third thing is this whole idea of misunderstanding. Jesus is communicating on one level and people are understanding what he's saying. Same words, but they're hearing something totally different. He offers water. She's thinking about literal water. He's talking about something far deeper than water. And the purpose of that is to set Jesus apart as the wisdom of God. The wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God. Lastly, um, it's just that, that Jesus is the wisdom of God in John's gospel, and so he relies on these wisdom books to help the church understand that uh, those books are also important in understanding, having a proper understanding of who Jesus is and was. Like in the book of Acts, where the gospel, the good news about Jesus' sacrificial death, went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then out into the Gentile world, John does the same thing in this early part of, of his gospel where he shares the, new, the, the good news with the Jewish leader, Nicodemus, with the Samaritan woman, and then a Roman official, most likely a Gentile, and, and, and those come to faith in Christ. And there's a contrast between 
the Jewish response and the response of the rest of the world. Unfortunately, his own did not receive him. But the folks in the rest of the world received him. And unless you're Jewish here today, that's really good news. (laughs) Because his passion, his desire, this message is for all of us. And John makes that clear. And um, this this is a large chapter, a lot of material. Not going to try, attempt to talk about all of the things that are in here. Um, if you want to go on, online and go back in our archives, Pastor Dunn preached a message on true worship um, that really focused on the, on the meaning and the priority of worship, and I think that would be a great uh, other place for you to go if you want to go deeper in that area. We will touch on it, but uh, we want to stay uh, in the big picture so we can get through the entire passage. In verses 1 through 6, there is the setting, uh, the background. And although there are a lot of things to talk about in the passage, I think that the, the most significant thing is that Jesus is going to Samaria, and he's going to pass through Samaria. In fact, the passage says that he has to, he needs to pass through Samaria. Um, I don't know if many of you have had these, but I've had the, the privilege of having many divine appointments where I was absolutely convinced that the meeting that I was having, the interaction I was having with this person was something that God had put together, that it wasn't a coincidence. In fact, sometimes I did everything I could to, uh, to not do or meet this person or go to this place, and yet God seemed to be driving me towards that in one way or the other. And, and then I get there and I have a conversation, and it's life-changing, not only for the other person, but also for me. Jesus is about to have a divine, a divine appointment. He's going to meet a woman by a well, and that is, um, in the Old Testament, meeting a woman by a well um, often meant uh, that the person was finding their wife. But really, what was behind meeting the woman by the well is a divinely appointed meeting. That this is no accident, that this is no coincidence, that God is sovereign and he's in control and he's working to bring this meeting of these two people together in this place and at this time. And if we're sensitive and open to the the leading and guiding of the Spirit of God as he's at work in our lives and our hearts, we will have those opportunities Our message this morning is about the fact that God is sending you and me to share the good news about Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it because he's the savior of the world. And so Jesus sets the example. He goes before us and he does exactly what he's calling us to do. Sometimes he's calling us to step out of our comfort zone, to step across the human barriers that we often have set up, culture, language, preferences, political affiliations, (laughs) whatever it is, geography, go somewhere else. 
maybe go across the street and talk to your neighbor that you just haven't been comfortable with talking to because they think differently and they look differently and they, they act differently and they have different customs and different values and what will I say? And He's calling us to, to step across and outside of our comfort zone into a, a new place and share the good news because he has people who are ready to hear. So Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria. Um, it's true that many Jews did not pass through Samaria, uh, that that was not something that they were uh, more than not comfortable with because of all the uncleanness of the Samaritans. The Samaritans are a group of people who, uh, some of them had some Jewish background, but they also were intermarried with people that were brought in by the Babylonians uh, who... Um, had different backgrounds, and so they came into uh, the Holy Land to, to uh, Israel, and they lived in the center of Israel, but they were very different than the Israelites in the north and the Israelites in the south. Their worship was different, as we'll see in the passage. Uh, in verses 7 through 15, we see that Jesus is the giver of living water. And that living water is the Holy Spirit. There's a misunderstanding. Jesus uses this, or John uses this feature of misunderstanding to help us see that Jesus is God's wisdom and to take us from a natural understanding to a supernatural understanding. Living water. So he comes to, to the well, and, he, and the woman comes to the well where he's seated, and he says to her, give me a drink. Now, this is against custom. This is against culture. The woman shouldn't be there unless she's an, a woman with a bad reputation, and she is. And Jewish teachers do not speak to women at all, let alone women with a bad reputation. Some of the rabbis forbid men to speak to their wives in public. And so Jesus crosses culture and custom and all the things that people, tradition and all the things that people would expect, including her. And he says to her, give me a drink. And the woman says to him, how do you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but what's unstated here is Jewish men have no dealings with women in public, especially if they're not their wives. Not a good Jew. Let alone a woman with a bad reputation. Jesus answered and said to her, who is it who says, I'm sorry, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who it was, if you knew the gift of God, and you knew who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, instead of me asking you, you would have asked me. Again, misunderstanding. Like in John chapter 3, you must be born again. But sir, how can I go into my mother's womb and be born again? 
Here she says to him, sir, I have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What's Jesus about? What's Jesus doing here? What's he talking about? Well, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 2, Therefore I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons I will contend. For across the coastlands to Kittim and Sea, and send to Kedar, these are places across the sea, and observe closely, and see if, if there has ever been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to dig out for themselves cisterns, wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2, 13. Also in John chapter 7, Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit that could be given to her so that the, the thirst of her soul, not just her physical thirst, the thirst of her heart, the thing that she's longing for, would be satisfied. Finally, she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw from the well. And obviously, she's still thinking from an earthly perspective. And he says, speaking of the thirst of her heart, and the longing of her soul. Go call your husband and come. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus is talking about the, the water that only he gives, and the water is synonymous with the Spirit. And the water satisfies the thirst of her soul, the longing of her heart. This is a, uh, a water metaphor that uh, really speaks about the satisfaction and the sustenance of our hearts, the things that we long for the most. And Jesus offers the gift of God, salvation, and also the satisfaction of the things that our hearts have been born, born for. There's a song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior, and it ends, uh, well, I just went blank. Uh, 
the last line is about the fact that he's the one that our hearts hunger for. Our hearts hunger for. The second thing that we see is Jesus revealed to, revealed to be this prophet like Moses. In John chapter 1, uh, we find the people asking John the Baptist if he is that prophet. What are they talking about? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord on the mountain on the day of assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore. I will die. And the Lord said to me, they have well spoken. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And it shall come about that Whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it. And Jesus is that prophet. The Samaritans, um, although they believed in God, in a sense, in a, of sorts, they only believed in the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament, so it's important for Jesus to relate this conversation and for John to relate this conversation to uh, the things that, that she would understand. That prophet, because he knows about her husbands and the man that she's living with now who's not her husband, she perceives that he is a prophet. Um, What's the role of a prophet? Number one, the role of the prophet is to pray for people. The first time the word prophet is used, it's used about Abraham, and he's told to pray for Abimelech because he is a prophet. Secondly, um, the prophet is to speak for God to the people, and then most important, I'm sorry, yeah, speak to God for the people, and most importantly, to speak to the people for God. He's an intercessor. He's a go-between. But his major job is to speak to the people for God. Jesus was not just a prophet. He was the prophet. He was the prophet like Moses. This was, uh, this was the one that both the Jews and the Samaritans were looking for. So Jesus finds a common ground. One of the things that we need to do when we cross cultures is find common ground. Um, Dr. Lytle and Diane, they went to another culture and they found some places of common ground where they could help people in the country that they were ministering in in South Africa, uh, different cultures, different backgrounds, come together. They found a place that they could all have in common, fellowship. They had tea time after church, right, after church? And that tea time was the place where people from all these different cultures came together and were able to share not only the tea that they liked in common, but talk about the God that they loved in common. John chapter uh, 4, verses 20 to 26, Jesus identifies himself as the I am of the Old Testament and demonstrates that he is the true God of worship. In this section, um, there is false worship versus true worship. 
Jews versus Samaritans. Do we worship in Jerusalem on Mount Zion or in uh, Samaria on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, where Jesus was, where Jacob's well is? Um, they have these clashes of cultures and ideas and even uh, clashes about what's right about worship and what's wrong about worship. The Samaritans had an idea about who the Messiah was going to be based on their limited understanding of the Old Testament. And the Jews had a greater idea about who Messiah was going to be based on a greater understanding of the Old Testament. But if, you, if you've studied the scriptures long enough, you know that both the Samaritans and the Jews got it wrong to some degree. The Jewish Messiah in Jesus' day, the anticipation of the Jewish Messiah was that he would be some revolutionary military leader who would destroy the Romans and set up his kingdom. And although there is a day coming when Jesus will be a great military leader, Revelation tells us about that, this is not that day. The Samaritans had an idea about Messiah based on the Torah and based on some of their traditions, but they missed who he was as well. So to change the subject, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You people, that's not a nice thing to say. Um, but it highlights the, cult, the, the clash between the cultures. And uh, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. You worship what you do know. I'm sorry, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation came to the Jewish people. The Messiah is going to be a Jewish man. Revelation of Scripture beyond the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, uh, reveals that, but the Samaritans didn't believe in those books, so they don't have that knowledge, or at least they don't believe in that knowledge, haven't believed in that knowledge. And Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jewish people. And an hour is coming, and now it is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, in this section of scripture, uh, there's this Confusion, there's this earthly understanding of who God is and who the Messiah is and what worship is, and then there's God's understanding. And again, they're missing each other. This confusion is intentional on God's part because not everyone is going to believe, and that's clear. But the message needs to go because you and I don't know who will believe. 
He does, but we don't. And so our job is to take the message and allow God through his spirit to do his work in the hearts of those who will receive it. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When, and when he comes, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am. I am. Powerful statement. At this point, his disciples came and were amazed that he was speaking to a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and told all the men, come and see the man who told me all the things that I have done. This is, this is, <laughs> this is not the Christ, is it? She's not sure. She's not certain. She's not a religious leader. She's not learned. She's not a scholar. She's just a regular person. A person with a checkered past. A person with a sinful present. Here's the response. People came out of the city and were coming to him. We don't know at this point if they believed because of the word of the woman, but we do know in the text that beyond what the woman says, they're going to believe. So Jesus crosses cultures. He talks to someone that he's not supposed to wouldn't normally talk to. But he had to go through Samaria because he had to meet this woman. And he had to meet this woman because through her the message was going to go. This most unlikely person, through her the message was going to go to the city and the people of Samaria. One of the amazing things that God does in the scriptures, and you'll see this over and over again, is that uh, God uses Gentiles to put the Jews to shame. People who are supposed to believe in God, Jonah. Supposed to follow God, Abraham. Supposed to do the will of God. And they're not doing God's will. They're not following God. And then some Gentile person who doesn't know a lick about God hears the smallest message and believes the Ninevites. The Samaritan's woman's confession that Jesus just might be the Messiah causes these people to come out of their, their town and come to the well to meet this man, to see what he's all about, and to hear what he has to say. In the meantime, meanwhile, back at the ranch, John 4, 31 through 38, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. They went to the city to get food for Jesus. Now they come back, and they say, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Another misunderstanding about food, about what energizes, about what sustains, about what satisfies. Earthly food versus heavenly food, kingdom food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Apparently this was a, uh, a common uh, saying in Christ's day. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. This is probably the barley harvest. Barley turns white when it's time to uh, be harvested. And so the fields are white to harvest. And he says already, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The misunderstanding is about earthly food versus heavenly food. And Jesus says there's no waiting for the harvest of the souls of people. Now is the time. There's no waiting. Now is the time. God's will for Jesus and for you and I is this food, this thing that brings great satisfaction, this thing that gives us sustenance, is to do the will of God and his will is to take the message. The great commission. <laughs> the great commission. You want to hear something appalling? Uh, one of our chapel speakers asked the question, of our students. How many of you know what the Great Commission is? And 50% of the student body raised their hands. And I thought to myself, somehow we missed it. Somehow we missed it. What are we here for? What is the will of God if it's not for us to take the message to the people who need to hear. And in order for us to take the message to the people who need to hear about Jesus being the Savior of the world, that means we have to take the message to people who are not like us sometimes. And yeah, sometimes that's scary, sometimes that's uncomfortable. Oh, way back in the, the last century, let me say it that way. I was alive in the last century, and way back in the last century, uh, um, we used to do street evangelism. And I remember uh, walking down the street with a bunch of uh, tracks in my hand, and I was talking to different people, and I saw this group of guys, teenagers, rough-looking bunch. And I remember the debate I had as I walked up to those guys. No, they're not going to be interested. They wouldn't care about this. They're not interested. Look at them. And somewhere I, I gathered up the courage to speak to that group of guys. And they were the most 
receptive and open group of people that I spoke to that day. We don't get to decide who's ready to hear the message. We don't get to decide who is worthy or who will receive and who won't receive. Even sometimes when people protest, argue, this Samaritan woman brings up every objection that she could think of. But our culture, but I'm a woman, but I'm a Samaritan. But we worship this way and you worship that way. Yet she was the one that God had chosen to take the message to the rest of her people. The most unlikely people. Think about the Apostle Paul. We think about the Apostle Paul. We don't think about the man Saul. Right? How scary. The man who's persecuting the church and killing Christians and He's the one that God chose. Maybe there's somebody where you work. Maybe there's somebody where you live. Maybe there's somebody that you cross paths with at the grocery store, the gas station. I don't know where that place is where God is going to take you, but what the scriptures say is in your going, as you go, when you're going, while you're going, because you're going all over, all, to all these different places, make disciples of all nations. That's what we're here for. That's the will of God. It was the will of God for Jesus, and it's the will of God for his people. That's the heart of the Great Commission. That's what the Great Commission's all about. Making disciples of all kinds of people. Earthly food versus heavenly food. Earthly harvests versus a heavenly harvest. Being about the things of this world or being about the will of the Father. We have to ask ourselves the question, what are we about? What's our focus? I've been a member of this church for a long, long, long time. And in the time that I've been a member, I've seen this congregation so large that we had to have two services at the same, you know, service in Sunday school, and then half the congregation would switch, and back and forth we went. We, we were so big. We had a Christian school. Um, we did all kinds of amazing things in those days. Um, and then things changed. I remember one day sitting, where I always sit, over there, and um, we were in a business meeting, and we were talking about the Christian school. The reality was we couldn't afford the Christian school. We couldn't afford to keep it open. And there were some people who were so angry about the school. The school, the school, the school. And I'm not against Christian schools. 
not against homeschooling. Uh, there's no right position on how you choose to educate your child. And certainly Christian schools can be used by God to share the good news with young children and families. And I don't ever want to negate that. But we have a unique position here. <clears throat> Excuse me. God placed us in a very important place, right next door to the only high school in the Abingtons. And while the school that we had was important, I couldn't help but wonder if we took all those dollars and all that energy and all that passion that we were talking about and we invested it there, what a difference it could make. One of the things that, that, that we can't help but think about when we look at this passage is um, true worship and what true worship is. And as we think of what true worship is, um, it's easy for us to, one thing that is true, it's easy for us to get caught up in the things that, that are really about our culture and our preferences and the things that we like and the things that we think are important and often are important. The most dangerous thing that we deal with in competition with worshiping Christ and following Christ and the true worship of Jesus is, could, can be an obsession about things that are good but not most important. The most dangerous thing that we face can be our obsession about things that are good but not most important. Food is good. It's not bad. But there is a greater food. Jesus crossed racial, cultural, political, gender lines to do the will of God because the will of God transcends race, culture, politics, and gender. Jesus is God and the Lord of true worship. And true worship is about the Spirit of God and the truth of God. False worship can be well-meaning and devout, but wrong. Worship that is wrapped up in our culture, in our geography, in our preferences, our experiences, our ideas, and our feelings, even our convictions that aren't necessarily biblical, but we've made them convictions because that means everybody has to believe it like we believe it because we call them convictions. Um, that kind of worship is false worship. It's idolatry. False worship can be the fact that you are passionate about many things that are good, 
but not passionate or less passionate about Christ and his gospel. That's idolatry. The first idol that I've ever confronted in, in my life and ministry um, is the idol of self. The church exists for my comfort, for my pleasure, for my position, to showcase my abilities and my accomplishments or the advancement of my views. That's a common idol in the church. I think there was a time, and I think it's past, but I think at least from my experience, but there was a time when really there was a, a strong public school, Christian school, homeschool debate, and everybody was right, and everybody else was wrong. Good things like making money, working out, studying theology, caring for the poor, caring for your family, the nation. They're good things. Yesterday, we um, needed to pause and reflect as a nation. We had to think about the sacrifice that many made It was the time to reflect on and remember those folks who died at the Pentagon, who died somewhere out of Pittsburgh in a field where they brought down a plane, and those people who perished in New York City. I was alive then. I remember those days. I, I remember that experience, I remember where I was, what I was doing when I heard. And, and that's really important for us to do. But we are part of another nation, part of another kingdom, right? Followers of Christ are a royal priesthood and a holy nation set apart for God's work. Fourth thing that we need to think about as we look at this passage is now is the time for the harvest. Jesus says some have <clears throat> sown and are sowing. And now his followers have the opportunity to reap so that both may rejoice together. Those who have sown and those who reap can rejoice together. Jesus commands his followers to lift up their eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for the harvest. And I wonder if we need to lift up our eyes and look around us. Maybe, just maybe, there are some folks who are coming from Afghanistan right now who are those that God has chosen to hear the message. Now's the time.
for us to lift up our eyes. It is God's will for us to do his work, this work, and we need to be about his will. I can't help but think of Jesus' words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? It's a challenging question. God's plan and God's will is to reach men and women, men and women from every, and, and children from every nation, every tribe, every language, and every culture. And Jesus led the way by stepping out of heaven and coming to earth. And as a man, as an earthly man, as a Jewish man, he stepped out of his culture and his traditions, the traditions of his culture, to, to reach each and every one of us. And I'm so glad that he did. That means that we need to be ready and willing to go with the message of Jesus across every earthly barrier, everything that's called a race. There's only one race, the human race. Every nation, every tribe or grouping of people, northerners and southerners, city dwellers and country folks, Republicans and Democrats, libertarians, environmentalists, communists, Muslims, Arabs, Asians, Indians from the East and Native Americans, Canadians and South and Central Americans and everywhere else that we could imagine, the good news is supposed to go there. And God has chosen you and I to take the good news there. Pastor Don says, Christians don't get to hate. Said that a lot. But the reality is, hatred is not really the Bible standard. That bar is way too low. The bar is love your neighbor, and anyone in need is your neighbor. James says, uh, uh, James says that we're supposed to love the widows and the fatherless in their affliction. And John says, whoever has these wor- his world's Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 1 John chapter 3, 17 and 18. We have been saved for good works. We are his workmanship. This beautiful poem, this beautiful story that Christ has created Four good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Jesus is sending you and I to share his word with those who need to hear because Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. So the Samaritans came out, and they spent time with Jesus, and the text tells us many more believed in his word, and they're going to the woman and saying, it's no longer because what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just for Jews. That was a big deal in that culture, in the world in which they lived in that day. 
that this God was not just exclusively for one group, but for everyone. Now is the time to lift up our eyes. Now is the time to go and reap the harvest that someone else may have sown. Now is the time to go and sow. It's not our job to save people. That's God's job. So the pressure's not on you. I've known people who believed that uh, if they didn't share the word of God with people that um, others would die and go to hell and, and their, their blood would be on their hands. I don't think the te- scriptures quite teach that. But it is the will of God for us to go and be part of what God is doing. He is saving people all over the world. Muslims. Jews. People who call themselves Christians and are not. Church folks. All kinds of people. People with bad reputations. People with checkered past and not so great present. Ordinary folks, sinners. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, to seek and to save that which is lost. And he's calling you and me, you and I, to be a part of that mission, his mission, into the world. He left heaven and came to earth. All the privileges of being in heaven, he laid aside. And he set the example for you and I. The challenge is for us to go wherever it is that God takes us and make disciples. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you challenge us out of our comfort zone and take us to places that we, we wouldn't normally go. Have conversations with people that we might not otherwise have except for the doing of your will. But in the doing, there is such a great reward. There is such a great opportunity to rejoice be a part of what you are doing in this world. God, I pray that we will lift up our eyes, that we will open our hearts to the things that you were trying to say to us and the ways that you were trying to lead us. Lord, keep us from the idolatry of good things. Lead us into the true worship of Jesus. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.